What does the name of God mean? Can we analyze it as some kind of verb and figure out something about God's character and nature? And should we translate, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be? And does it matter? As promised, we're going to sit down today with an expert who has spent a lot of time thinking and writing about these things and more. So get ready to hear some ideas you've probably never heard before in this episode of Working for the Word. special guest today, someone who's done a lot of thinking and digging about the divine name. And his name is Austin Searles, Dr. Austin Searles. He's an associate professor of biblical studies at Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary in Amman, Jordan. So welcome, Austin. Hey, Andrew and everyone. Yeah, thank you for being with us. Thank you for taking the time. No problem. Thanks for... uh doing this. It's 8 a.m. Saturday morning at your time, so this is a sacrifice for you as well. <laughs> not at all, not at all. I wouldn't uh, miss this for the world, so thank you. Before we get started with your dissertation topic and all this stuff about the divine name, we would love to hear a little bit about yourself, your background, what you do now, uh, if you can share a little bit about that, and why you did a PhD on the divine name. Sure. Yes, my name is Austin. I am an evangelical Christian. I imagine most of you are too, so we're coming at Scripture and the world with the same worldview and the same view of um, Scripture. Um, I grew up in California, and but now the big sort of significant reality is that I live in Amman, Jordan with my wife, and two children. Um, I can't mention mention myself and any achievements I may have achieved without mentioning my wife, Heather. She is a warrior. She is, in fact, <laughs> holding back our two boys while I can do this interview, kind of restraining them from flooding in the room. And uh, we moved to Amman five years ago, and I have been teaching. The reason we're in Amman is I'm teaching Old Testament at a seminary, like you said, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary. Um, awesome. Yes. Why I did a PhD on the divine name. Ever since learning Hebrew back in 2004 and learning of this strange tradition where you read with your eyeballs a four-letter word and you pronounce a different word over it, I've been intrigued by the divine name, which clearly you are, Andrew, and many of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um so that, that sort of passion stuck with me through my various schools I studied at. And before I came to Wheaton College to get my PhD, I wrote to potential mentors there. And Daniel Block was very interested in supervising a thesis on the topic. So um, I got accepted, praise the Lord, and eventually sort of found the book of Exodus and studied three main texts in the book of Exodus to understand the divine name more. So that's how I got led to it. Nothing too surprising, maybe. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's great. I have so much admiration and love for Dr. Block, and uh, that was, must have been a really big privilege to study under him. He's great. I've never seen someone merge pastoral love with rigorous scholarship. So he was just the best person to have at Wheaton. He really was. Yeah. I've never met him in person, but uh, I've been blessed so much through his commentaries. Mm, yes. So, they're yeah, Judges, Ruth, so. Ezekiel, amazing stuff. Awesome. So, yeah, well, great. Would you mind reading us? So, this is a kind of a nerdy thing for our listeners, but this is what we do. Would you mind reading us the abstract to your dissertation? Yes. So that we can take that as a, a jumping off point. Yes, and it is nerdy. Let's just admit it and be okay with that. Um, yeah, yep. I've got it up here. Um, anyone listening is welcome to get the dissertation. It's on academia.edu, um, free download, and I'm reading from that same PDF. Great, and I'll link it in the description. Oh, excellent. There you go. So without further ado, here's my four-paragraph abstract. The book of Exodus defines the divine name, Yahweh, providing a description of God's character that is fundamental for biblical and theological reflection. Most have found this definition in Exodus 3, 13 through 15, in the supposedly original form, Yahweh, in quotes, which relates etymologically to the enigmatic phrase, Ehyeh asher Ehyeh. However, this text is ancillary to and preparatory for the true revelation of the divine name. Yahweh progressively revealed his name at three critical points in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, chapter 6, and chapter 34. God's response to Moses' request for his name in Exodus 3, 13-15 is couched in a pentateuchal form called an explicit naming wordplay, commonly referred to as a folk etymology, in quotes. Ehyeh asher ehyeh should be translated, I will be whoever I will be, indicating that Yahweh would reveal the sense of his name through future actions and proclamations. Exodus 6, 2-8 suggests that Yahweh would become known by name in a new way to Moses' generation. Yahweh uttered the recognition formula, in quotes, to associate the powerful actions of the plagues and Exodus events with his name. Nevertheless, Yahweh's definitive proclamation of his character came after Israel's blatant idolatry. He responded to Moses' intercession by proclaiming the name Yahweh in a formulaic manner that Israel could appropriate, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Hebrew Bible quotes or alludes to this text in many genres, demonstrating its centrality to Israel's faith and to Old Testament theology. The critical issues raised by Exodus 3, 13-15 and Exodus 2-8 have attracted an overwhelming amount of attention and comment. However, they are rarely interpreted together with Exodus 33, 12-23, and 34, 6-7. The character of God cannot be discerned from an etymological analysis of the word yod heh but from a close study of Yahweh's deliberate, 
onomastic ascription made in response to Israel's sin. Wonderful. Thank you. So you just alluded to this and you start out your book talking about the problem of etymologizing names as character descriptions. Could you elaborate on that as well as its history within scholarship? Yes. I don't want to say much about its history within scholarship for interests of time. Um, Okay. In short, um, sort of liberal German thought approached naming as folk etymologies and the assumptions there, in my opinion, are just way off from the way we view scripture. So Mm. I don't view it as later people making up a connection from a name that was original. I think it's very much um, telling history as it is, sort of an evangelical view of scripture. Gotcha. Um, But etymologizing names, basically, I don't think in general it's right to parse a biblical name, at least not with the goal of applying the meaning of that verbal form to the character of the name bearer. Sometimes, sometimes it's true that a biblical name has a root in it, and that root meaning describes the character of the person. But that isn't true, in my opinion, with the divine name. And there's other examples that bear that out. Um, For example, Simeon comes from the Hebrew root Shema, and it has nothing to do with Simeon's hearing, even though that's the root there. Simeon. Right. Reuben, Reuben, look, it's a son, has nothing to do with Reuben's faculty of seeing. And so, while it, it works sometimes, I don't think it works with a divine name, and I don't think it works actually with most names in Genesis or Exodus. So, I think etymologizing a, a name isn't super helpful, especially with yod Hey vav Hey. Gotcha. What about the names of books like Jonah, for instance? That Would that be another example? Yeah, good question. So Jonah, Yonah means a dove, and some find a meaning that helps us understand the meaning of the book. Is that what you're getting at, Andrew? Like, Yeah, exactly. I think if... No, I don't think that's super fruitful. Um, in class, for example, I will mention sometimes that like, Hezekiah's name, Chizkiyahu, has some idea of the Lord is strong, the Lord gives strength, the Lord is my strength, Lord and strength. And that's interesting, but I don't go much beyond that. Um, And I don't think, for example, Yonah, Jonah, has much of a meaning in the story. And frankly, if it had a really tight meaning to the story, it might lead us to believe the story's fiction. And it's my opinion that these stories are, are true history, so... If it sounds a little too clever, it makes me think that it was a later creation. Um, and that's not, that's, not, that's not giving great reasons as to why. I'll get to that. But um, I tend right. not to focus much on the, 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 quote, root meaning of a biblical name. Just uh, to pick up on that a little bit more, I'm wondering, how do you interact with people who are very excited about etymologizing names? <laughs> because... I know, I know that within Christianity, there's a lot of people who love, you know, going back to the Hebrew roots and they just eat this stuff up, you know, any kind of connection, um, almost to the level of Bible code. Some don't go that far, but, but they, they love this kind of stuff. I, I'm just wondering what you would say to those sorts of people, 
because it's hard sometimes, and I've found, I've found this myself, it's hard to be the guy who's kind of taking the wind out of people's sails, you know? I've talked to people who even wept, you know, over seeing these kinds of connections, and then you feel like, well, you know, that's great, but I don't want to spoil your party, you know? Yeah, 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 rain on the parade. Um, yeah. However... I or you would interact with someone in that view. Obviously, your personality is going to come through. I'm very much a turtle that avoids conflict, and I'm very much a teddy bear that wants people to get along. So however, uh, I, however I discuss it with someone, it's going to be pretty gentle or indirect. Um, right. It's usually when I'm at home with my wife and I say, I can't believe that person named their child such and such and said it was a Hebrew word and it's not even close. You know, we've, we've <laughs> like three or four of those in our in our lives, like, that's not even a Hebrew word. Where did they get their dictionary? Um, but in person, I'd probably just ask questions and like, yeah, I would be kind of kind of wimpy when it comes to actually confronting someone on it. Um, if they were a good friend, I think I'd start to explain how I came to this view. And some of it's in the first chapter, the kind of boring method chapter of my dissertation. And there's a guy named James Barr, who's actually a pretty kind of, kind of mean guy towards evangelicals, but he has some good views of language. And he talks about um, the problem of etymologizing and basically saying that a Semitic root, a root in a Semitic language is not a magical entity that has tentacles of meaning that can stretch out in any direction. I think God revealed his word in language that those people understood at that time, and the language should be read and understood naturally. So... Uh, as much as I don't get fired up about a lot of things, I get fired up when people have a sort of, um, you used the word earlier, but yeah, sort of a Bible code, mystical view of biblical languages. And there's a view out there, I forgot the dictionary, but there's a man, sort of an amateur that wrote a dictionary, and there's power in each letter, and there's power in the roots, and he has all these deep exegesis that comes from a root, but it's not based on the natural linguistic system that Hebrew yeah. is built off of. Yeah, that, that mystical, magical view of Hebrew is very prominent and it, it's not going away anytime soon. And you see it all over YouTube. It has millions of views. Well, you've seen it more than me, Andrew. I'm sure I just see it casually on YouTube. But the divine name, I mean, people are out there and they, they just kind of plug and play Y, vowel, H, vowel, V, vowel, H, and like asserts this is the meaning of the divine name and it almost feels cultish and um, right right people are really yeah, staunch I, about it. it surprises me yeah i i actually was sent a video the other day forwarded a video of a guy who's a latin american who was saying that he was sharing that the rabbis have said that the four letters of the divine name are like breathing in and out and so every time somebody breathes in and out, they're pronouncing the divine name, and that connects with everything that has breath, praise the Lord kind Weird. of thing. Yeah, yeah, there's views out there. I've heard stuff. <laughs> Probably some um, Kabbalah or some Kabbalah has said things about these letters, and that's a mystical tradition. So, Right. I don't know how to correct it, Andrew. Lots of teaching, <laughs> teaching in schools, yeah. teaching pastors to be responsible with Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, there's a lot of power in understanding Hebrew, even sort of naturally, just through the system. And if pastors can be sort of under dramatic about the languages, but clear about the message, I think that could help. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that brings me to the next point. You also talk about the problem of atomistic exegesis. What is that, if you could explain to our listeners, and how does it cause problems in discussions of the divine name? Um, atomistic exegesis is essentially focusing on a very small unit of scripture and not studying it in the light of the bigger part. So mm. that's an atom, a little piece. Um, and this is huge with Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Um, this is huge with Exodus 3, 13, 14, and 15, where people write article after article on what's going on there, but they're not looking in the context of Exodus 3 and 4 or the context of Exodus or the context of Genesis and Exodus. Um, so that's all. It's what we've been taught in seminary that we need to study according to the larger context, the entire biblical book or the entire literary unit. And right. difficult texts, in my opinion, become less difficult the more you widen the context. So, um, And I see that as a big problem in Exodus 3, essentially. Part of your book, part of your book's title has something a lot of people probably haven't heard of before which is literary onomastics. So could you explain what that is and how it applies to the divine name discussion? Yes, um, it's not too important of a phrase, actually. Every dissertation needs a rigorous method chapter at the beginning. I can't just say I'm studying the book of Exodus as a literary unit. I have to say I am doing a literary onomastic reading of Exodus, which all that means is... Um, we should let the literary work define the meaning of a person's name in the story rather than stopping at the word, pulling it out of the context, and analyzing that one word. So I'm getting back to what I said before, where people parse Yahweh out of context and say this is what it tells us about God instead of letting the book of Exodus explain what this word, this name, means. So literary onomastics, you can forget the phrase, but... What it means is let the book of Exodus define what Yahweh means. Don't let a dictionary entry that parses the word define what the name means. That's really helpful. Thank you. So how do you understand naming to work in the Hebrew Bible? And could you give us some examples? I will. This is where my answers get longer. I apologize for all of your, uh, ask for patience from all of you. The no, 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 no. Second, the, the second chapter of my dissertation gets into this because we can't understand Exodus 3, 13 to 15 without understanding the biblical literary form that it's written in. So we stumble over, um, suppose I come to the people of Israel and they ask me, what is his name? That is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What should I say to them? God first says, Ehyeh, asher ehyeh. And he says, uh, I will be who I will be. I will be has sent me to you. Yahweh has sent me to you. And we just stumble. What is that? What is that? Well, before Exodus 3, there are at least 50 verses or 50 instances where a character in the story or a place is named. And not only that, they're named, but they are, the name is given a sort of a, an ascription or a description, and within that description is a word that sounds like the name. So, for example, the first one is the naming of woman in Genesis 
2, the end of Genesis yeah. 2. And it's lovely because it works in English, it works in Arabic, and it works in Hebrew. He called her Isha in Hebrew. Why? Ki me ish lukachat zot. Isha ish. Or ish. Yeah, Isha ish. He's called woman because she was taken from man. Isha ish. And in Arabic, it's imra'a and imre. It's like the same wordplay. And in English, it's woman and man. And so that's the first instance of what I call, with a very bulky term, explicit naming word plays in the Bible. But Exodus 3, I am, I will be who I will be in Yahweh, that's actually like the 50th instance of these word plays that are naming based in Genesis and Exodus. So we need to understand Exodus 3 in light of this biblical form. It helps us understand what the interaction is between the Lord's three replies to Moses. Um, Cain in in um, Genesis 4.1, it doesn't work in English. She um, had a child and she named him Cain and said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. But in Hebrew, it's Cain and the verb is Kaniti. His name is Cain and she says Kaniti, which means I have gotten. There's a word play there. Cain, because she said in the description, Kaniti. Um, okay. Simeon, his name is Shimon, ki shama'a Elohim, because God has heard. Shimon, shama'a. So there's 50 instances of a wordplay going on with a name, and that's the literary form in which Exodus 3 is couched. I have more to say, but do you need me to clarify anything, Andrew? Because that's kind of heavy. Well... I would love to follow up with that with, uh, since you mentioned Cain, with Abel. Abel isn't, would you call it an explicit? It, it, I, I guess I can't remember it being explicit. Um, it's implicit. But it is an interesting name according to his life. Yes. Correct me if I'm wrong. Hevel means something like breath or vanity or, you know, it's or going vapor, away quickly. Smoke. Yeah. Yep. Um, I think there's something going on there, but I would call it an implicit naming wordplay. There's no there's no um, sentence by the mother that says, I've named him Hevel because of this verb that sounds like Hevel. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of those in the Bible. Um, yeah. Shaul and other stories that they seem to be playing on the root meaning of the name. So there's stuff going on with root meaning, but I'm looking only at the names where there's some sort of statement by the father or mother and then the name given, or the name given and then a statement by the father and mother. There's uh, 11 of those naming word plays concentrated in the end of Genesis 29 and the beginning of Genesis 30. That's when Jacob's 11 sons are born at one time, essentially. And there's 11 naming word plays, one after another. They all word play in Hebrew. That's helpful. Usually when they look at these word plays, people start etymologizing. They say, let's look at the word that sounds like the name and let's assume that the, the root meaning describes the character of the child. But that rarely works. Even if we take Cain, the actual name is Cain. I don't know what that's supposed to be linguistically, but the verb it relates to is Kaniti, which means I have gotten or I have acquired. That has nothing to do with the boy's character. The name isn't 
referring to the child. And, yeah. and here's the big point. I think the naming is oftentimes in Genesis and Exodus memorializing an event or making reference to something related to the birth. And that's what the name draws your mind to, not to the name bearer and his character, but to the event. Uh, so Cain uh, remembers the fact when, for the first time in history, Eve has gotten a man with Yahweh or whatever that means, with the help of Yahweh. Yeah. Um, and Simeon doesn't reflect Simeon's hearing. It reflects that the Lord heard, I think it was Leah, and she had a baby. Reuben means God looked and saw that she didn't have a baby and he gave Jacob his firstborn. Look, it's a son. It's memorializing an event. Uh One more thing I need to say, and this is complicated, but you guys are smart, so we'll go with it. Um, If the verb in the, the verb of the wordplay, not the name, but the verb that the wordplay is connected to, if that verb is in the yiktol form or the imperfect form, then it's not memorializing an event because a yiktol is usually future or present. If the verb in the in the wordplay is yiktol, it's either it's usually looking to the future or expressing a wish. So we would say it is anticipating an event. Uh-huh. The two examples I have, or the one I can think of, is Levi. There's two two I can think of. One is Levi. The verb connected to Levi is yilave. It's an not not a common verb, but yilave means he will be attached. And Leah, I think it was Leah, named Levi and said yilave with the hope, the anticipation that her husband would be attached to her because she delivered a second child. The other one is Noah. Noah relates in sound to yunachamenu which means he will comfort. And his um, father, Lamech, says, God will comfort the ground because of this child. And he's, in both instances, Levi from the lips of Leah and Noah from the lips of Lamech, they are anticipating a future event through that yiktol verb. Right. Does that make any sense? I hope it does. Perfect, Um, perfect sense, yeah. So we have to really knuckle down, look at the naming wordplay form, and then look at the verbs that are being used in connection with the name. If the verb is um, katal form, then it's it's past tense, it's memorializing the the birth. If it's Uh yiktol form, it's looking ahead, anticipating something. Uh But in no case is it really referring to the name bearer. It's referring to events, either present or future. Yeah. And that's a very clear distinction that I think a lot of people, including myself, have not done before. Yeah, um, I've never really seen and it. And not I've seen. Never seen yeah. Exodus 3 interpreted according to the naming wordplay form. So mm-hmm. I hope it's right. useful. Great. Um, if you would, let's go from there. And if you would walk us through the salient points of Exodus 3 for this discussion. Yes, wonderful, because I just set it up, so you can't explain it without setting it up. Exodus 3, 13 to 15 is part of the larger context of Moses sort of debating with God at the burning bush. And we're looking at the, the their little dialogue on the name of God. What's his name? What should I say your name is? But um, that's couched within a larger conversation 
And when God first tells Moses from the bush to go and approach Pharaoh, Moses gives five objections as to why he shouldn't go to Pharaoh. We know them well. Oh, I'm heavy of tongue and I don't know how to speak. Oh, if I come to them, what will I say your name is? Oh, they won't believe me. Oh, I'm not eloquent. Oh, just send somebody else, you know? So the second objection is the name objection. So it's important to see that it's part of a larger dialogue. It's not just thrown in by some philosophically minded Jewish person to say something about God's aseity or self-existence. No, it's part of this conversation. Second thing is there is a clear, explicit naming wordplay in Exodus 3. Then Moses said to God, this is verse 13, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, I'm, I'm interrupting myself. God replies three times in a row, but there's a marker in Hebrew every time, Vayomer. So like, God said this, then God said this, then God said this. We will see that his three replies become more specific. His three replies actually answer the question increasingly, like more specific. So we tend to really camp on the first phrase, which is, God said to Moses, and I'll say it in Hebrew, Ehyeh. Asher I won't even translate it. We'll just say that. That was God's answer, which is really weird. And in my opinion, vague and not intended to be the answer. It's sort of a setup. Then God said, say this to the people of Israel. has sent me to you. That's even more vague. That's like taking a verb and making it a name, which doesn't make sense in any case especially in the first person. Why would you ever call someone by a first person verb? Then it's referring to you. That's really weird. So verse 15, God reaches the answer. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. yod heh vav the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You mentioned this in your long and very wonderfully researched paper, Andrew, that we need to focus on the fact that the Tetragrammaton is God's name forever, and that's how he's supposed to be spoken of. It's not ultimately not good, I think. The Jewish tradition wasn't from the right sentiment because God wanted his people to use and greet and pray in his name. I'm, I'm with you on that. Anyway, what's what's going on with Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh? Ehyeh sent me to you. My name is Yodhe Vavhe. It's a it's a wordplay. Clearly, Ehyeh sounds like the Tetragrammaton, even though I believe we don't actually know the vowels for the divine name. That's I, I'm on record saying that I have no idea what the vowels are for Y H W H. And in my opinion, me neither. Yeah, in my opinion, it's not Yahweh. I'm actually kind of strong in that it's not Yahweh, but I say it right. sometimes. We'll get to that. Um, the point is there's a wordplay, the same sound or similar sound between Ehye and the Tetragrammaton. That means, ding, it's, it's an um, explicit naming wordplay. So God gives a phrase with a word that sounds like the name first, then he leads Moses into the name, and 
At this point, I need to explain how I translate it. This is important for Bible translators and everyone. It is very clear to me that ehye, asher ehye, should be translated in the future tense. Future. I will be whoever I will be. It's a yiktol verb and it's a being verb. Um, Semitic languages do not use present tense being verbs. They just don't. I, I'm using Arabic now in Jordan. We don't. We say pronoun, noun, or pronoun, adjective. I hungry. Right. I this. I am going. You don't say am. There is no present tense being verb. And that's not just a modern Arabic thing. That's a Semitic thing through all the Semitic languages. So, so nonverbal clauses for present. Yeah, it just... Like there's maybe, there probably are ways to say I am who I am in Hebrew, but it's not it might be something like ani asher ani or something weird like, like, yeah, that sounds better. Or like yeshni asher yeshni or something weird like that. Ani asher ani. Even um, Babylon in, in the second half of Isaiah, she says, I am and there is no other. And she says, ani blah 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 and there is no other i am so mm. ani is That's a really good one or even ani who asher ani who or something like that would be i am who i am right but uh i'm unusually staunch about this should be i will be whoever i will be i looked at the verb and how it's used throughout the hebrew bible in every case it's either future meaning or a sort of a jussive modal, subjunctive meaning. It's never I am. It's always I will be, I would be, I could be. Yeah. That's a huge point in my dissertation because that gives us the first peg in understanding the gradual revelation of God's name. I actually think that the revelation here is not much of a revelation. It's more of a, it's, I said in the abstract, it's ancillary to and preparatory for a later revelation of the divine name. What does God say his name is? He first says, I will be whoever I will be. Tell the people of Israel, I will be has sent me to you. Wait, that doesn't make sense. Ah, Yahweh, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Essentially, if I could say it in another way, very like, not slangy quite, but simple way, it would be like this. Moses really wants to know what God's name is, but he puts it in the mouth of the people. What is his name? God is, uh, Moses is essentially saying, what is your name? God says, I will be whoever I will be, which means Moses, just wait. The future will be revealing what my name means. Now's not the time. I will be whoever I will be. It's open-ended. It's indeterminate. When you repeat two verbs after the relative pronoun, it's indeterminate. I will be whoever I will be. Um, and that name relates to the divine name. And here we have a naming wordplay with a yiktol verb. It's anticipating a future event. Just like Yilave was anticipating Jacob being attached to his wife because she bore him Levi, Levi. Just like Noah, Yenachemenu, will comfort the, the earth. So Yahweh, yeah, he will be whoever he will be. Um, so at the end of the day, I don't actually put a, like really any theological weight in this phrase. I think it's it's a big arrow pointing to the right 
or the left if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, I guess, but um, to the future. There's going to be a revelation of what this name means, but at the burning bush, all you're getting is sort of a, a prediction or a let's wait and see what's going to happen. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. That's brilliant. Brilliant and very helpful. And uh, it totally makes sense in the context of Exodus because he's about to really bust out the fireworks to show them who he is, right? Yeah, that's, um, it's really a pretty small minority view. So I, I tend not to push it too hard on my students, although I'm strong about making it a future translation, but I just haven't found this anywhere. And um, hopefully as I explain the coming two chapters in the book, it'll make even more sense that there's a coherent sort of presentation of God's name. Yeah, yeah. So that leads me to the next question. In your book, you take issue with Frank Moore Cross's analysis of the divine name in his book, Canaanite Myth and Hebrew Epic. And so I'm thinking specifically about what you say on pages 101 through 104. So if people are downloading your PDF and stuff. They can check those out and follow along if they want. But could you explain what this issue is and your response? Yes, I will. Frank Moorcross is a brilliant scholar, but he definitely has liberal assumptions. And so the way he treats the divine name at the end of the day is really kind of weird, in my opinion. He doesn't really study it in context. He studies it in a broader ancient Near Eastern context, but even that seems a bit selective. Um, and he also is strong in saying that the original form is Yahweh, and we should parse it as a Hifil, third masculine singular. Uh, anyway, he causes to be. And this is huge. This is this etymology is just in, huge in theological circles. And the name teaches right. us about God's aseity and all these deep philosophical things that I still don't understand. Um, so my point again is Yahweh is not parsable. It's just not parsable. Yeah, he says it's Yahweh and he compares it with other ancient Near Eastern divine names, which is a very good um, approach, but we're not even sure some of his ancient Near Eastern stuff is accurate. He's basing it off of syllabic renderings in Akkadian. We don't know if it actually comes across as Yahweh. He's looking at other names. Um, I also just don't think it works linguistically the form Yahweh. Um, I don't think Yahweh was ever understood by the first recipients as a verbal form. One reason is there's an inscription called the Mesha Stele found in Jordan of all places in 850 BC and it contains the Tetragrammaton etched into the 18th line on the right side, yod heh vav -Heh, in Paleo-Hebrew letters. Um, yod heh vav -Heh. Okay. If yod heh vav -Heh has always been understood as Yahweh, he causes to be, and it's a verbal form, it should not have been written yod heh vav -Heh. It should have been written yod heh vav yod Because at that time, the way they wrote those weak verbs, third hey weak verbs, they put a yod instead of an H at the end. For example, in line two, there's the verb yivneh. Yivneh, he builds. But it's written yod, bait, nun, yod. So there's a yod at the end, not a hey. So, right. yeah. Hey tends not to be used. Hey is never used as like a matris lexiones for e. Eh. It's only used for a vowel letter for o. Um, and that's used in the stele. So 
If this name from the beginning was intended to mean he causes to be and it was a parsable verbal form, then this Moabite author would have known that, would have written it with a yod. But it appears yod he vav he from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like a lot of what Cross is doing is sort of starting with the form Yahweh from sort of blackboard grammar, from just parsing it out and then finding things to fit it in ancient Near Eastern analogs. Yeah. Um, doesn't seem to work. I also, I, I kind of guess in my dissertation, you questioned me on this, Andrew, and the questions you gave me. It's possible the name isn't sort of originally Hebrew. Proper names anyway sort of don't belong to a language, in my opinion. They're sort of their own thing. But the fact that we have four weak consonants making up a name, um, it's just a guess. I don't want to go to the go to the wall for this, but it just seems sure. to me that there's four weak consonants. I don't think it's related to the root haya being. I don't think it is at all. Um, but again, if we believe the story of Scripture, the name Yahweh was known by Adam and Eve and Cain and Seth, and maybe they didn't speak Hebrew, so this name just right. was sort of there. The problem is, yeah. I don't have a real constructive answer in place of this. Like, what was the original language? I don't know. What was the original form? I don't even know. I have this funny sentence after like 24 pages of discussing the original form of the divine name. I basically have one sentence and I say, it could mean this, this, or that. And I'm not even sure. So it's really disappointing because I don't have <laughs> anything to say. It could be Yahwahu. But probably the H is a strong H, like in Arabic. So you have to kind of pronounce that second and fourth letter, like Yahwah, Yahwahu, Yahwahu, Yani Yahwah. Maybe there was a short vowel at the end. Um, so it's kind of disappointing. I kind of say it's not Yahweh, but um, I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really fascinating, and I think it does make sense because. I don't know. It, it just seems right for God to have a name that's distinct from mm. everyone else, mm. you know? It's a mystery. Uh, yeah, it really is a yeah. mystery. Um, we don't like to say that as scholars who are working the word and trying to get at truth, but... Uh, right. I kind of think sometimes, if I can attribute this to the Lord in a very fatherly, loving way, I feel like he's kind of smirking when we think we know the original form of his name. Like he's kind of saying, that's really cute. They didn't get it right, but they're trying. It's like people try to say my name in Arabic and they don't get it too close. I'll, 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 I'll respond, okay, yeah, I know you're talking to me, but it's cute, you know, you, your lips don't quite know how to say it because you're not used to the structure. Um, and in a sort of, lo- not in a mean way, a condescending, but in a loving, loving fatherly way, I kind of think the Lord looks down at us like, oh, um, I love what yeah. my children are doing. Um, I sort of made the name disappear, the vowels, but uh, they're trying their best, and I love that. You know, it's it's not condemnation. It's just kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about the evidence for Yahoo versus Yahweh. You talk a lot about that, and what should people know about this? I have a long excursus at the end of chapter three, and I go through a lot of the manuscripts and what the evidence is, and basically, I think we've been sort of told a. A misrepresentation of the original form. I remember learning in Greek class in college that, oh, there's some Greek guys that wrote the name Yoda Alpha Beta Epsilon Yabe. But I'd started diving into that and the, the, the people that wrote Yabe as the form of the divine name were really late, like 500 AD and afterward. 
There are earlier Greek writers that do it as Yoda Alpha Omega, Yao, probably a, a Greek way of saying Yahoo or Yaho. And most important is in the 500s BC, there was a group of Jews living in Egypt an Elephantine Island, and they wrote the divine name yod heh -Vow, uh, wow probably Yahoo or Yaho. So that's older evidence. If we have to go with what's oldest, we should probably go with Yahoo, which is still tough because there's not the final hey. We want that final hey, but it dropped right. out. So all, all we need to know is that the oldest form manuscript-wise is actually Yahoo, not Yahweh. And um, there's a book, I saw you quoted it by Frank Shaw, where he follows Jews that wrote in Greek and used the form Yao, Yahoo, in history. They were a minority group, but they weren't afraid to pronounce the divine name in some form. All this comes to bear. I think probably the original form of the divine name sounded kind of like Yahoo, and people shortened it or simplified it to Yahoo. I could be wrong. It could be just a, a, an intentional changing of the name that was mentioned in your paper, Andrew. Could be an intentional changing of the name to make it safeguard the original form. But maybe God right. was like, revealing a word that was kind of hard to say in Hebrew, and it was something like Yahawahu. And instead of always saying Yahawahu, they dropped out a syllable. Yahawahu became yeah. Yahoo. Maybe their theophoric names were originally Chizki Yahawahu. And if your name was Chizki Yahawahu, I would rather call you Chizki Yahu or Chizki Yah. Yeah. It could be, but that's about as much as I want to say about Yahoo versus Yahweh. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's really uh, unfortunate that I think there's not enough honesty about that within seminary or wherever else. I feel a little bit bummed that... <laughs> This this kind of thing was not brought to my attention after you know doing a whole MDiv and really understanding the ins and outs of it. Yeah, I don't. So. I didn't know either. I totally was thinking it was Yahweh, but once I really pressed into the evidence, um, it was the most exciting part of my dissertation. The rest was pretty tedious, but when I actually got into this, it was like, whoa, cool! Like it's actually a different form, and Yahweh's late, and I already think Yahweh's a suspect because it's a parsable form. So it was cool to have external. And if I may, internal evidence that right. Yahweh doesn't really work. So let's go back now because you wanted to camp out some more on Exodus 6 and then 33 and 34. So could you walk us through some important highlights of those passages for this discussion? Yes. Exodus 3 is anticipatory to the revelation of the divine name. It's the first step of three major steps in the progressive revelation of the meaning of Yahweh. And all we get really is, I will be whoever I will be. But it's couched in that indeterminate verb, relative pronoun, verb construction. Remember that, it will come up later. Then in Exodus 5, um, we get sort of a new theme, and that is the knowledge of the name Yahweh. Moses and Aaron do obey, and they tell Pharaoh, let, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh throws down the proverbial gauntlet and says, Who is Yahweh that I should let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. Which I think doesn't literally mean he'd never heard of him. It means, who is he? You know, whatever. I do not know yeah. Yahweh. I do not recognize him. So I believe God at that point picks up the gauntlet and says, Okay, gauntlet thrown, gauntlet received. 
I will show you who I am. And that helps us understand the critical issue in Exodus 6, 2, and 3, where he says, I am Yahweh. Um, I made myself known. I became known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. But as for my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. But actually he was. You read Genesis, it's in the mouth of Yahweh. He says, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to Abraham. Right. The way I think we solve this critical issue is not to go back to Genesis and try and justify what's going on there. I think we just have to keep marching ahead. And after we look back at the end of Exodus, we will discover that Moses and his generation came to know Yahweh and the meaning of that name in a way that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did not, could not, and God did not take the initiative to reveal. Does that make sense? Yeah. And uh, it seems that that's one of the things God is getting at when he says to Pharaoh, like what Paul picks up in Romans nine sixteen, 16, mm. uh, I have raised you up for this very purpose to show my power. Kind of like, and then that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So. Yes. Let me, in uh, fact, elaborate on that. So Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So if knowledge of the name Yahweh is in fact a big deal, it should bear itself out in the text. And sure enough, if you read every report for every plague, every single report, either before the happening of the plague or after, is this recognition formula, which is essentially a phrase that says that you may know that I am Yahweh. Every, exactly. every single plague. So the first plague, I am doing this so that you may know that I am Yahweh. I am bringing frogs on the land so that Egypt may know that I am Yahweh. I am bringing gnats so that my people may know that I am Yahweh. I am doing this, Pharaoh, so that you will know that to Yahweh belongs the land. And the climax is what you mentioned, Andrew. Like, I have raised you up for this purpose, to show my power and to proclaim my name in all the earth. Yeah. It's clear. Like, there is a new revelation happening and God is tying his name to these events so that to the name Yahweh, we can now ascribe or define the name as the God who is powerful, who struck Egypt, who separated his people, and who saved them. Mm -hmm. That's the second stage in the revelation of the name Yahweh. Mm. But that actually is not complete. We have to continue to interpret the whole literary unit. And Exodus 6 is only the second stage. There's I will be whoever I will be. Then there's you will know that I am Yahweh and he's powerful and he saves his people. But there's another sort of drama in the book that requires another step forward in the revelation of God's name. And that's the golden calf sin. God reveals the covenant and the laws, sorry, the, um, what does Carmen call them? Anyway, like the covenant stipulations and the commands, 10 commands, the Decalogue, and the people clearly break the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make, you know, molten gods. They do it. They make the golden calf. And so Moses in, this is very important. I zero in on Exodus 32, 33, and 34. It's this narrative embedded between the instructions of the tabernacle. And Moses intercedes for the people three times. And the third intercession is really glorious and really ties into this issue. It's in Exodus 33, 12 through 21. And there's... Lots of concepts going on. It's not easy. It has some famous sayings like, show me your glory. 
But what I think they're getting at is that maybe we don't, we're not used to this view of God, but it seems almost as if the Lord is reluctant or pretending to be reluctant so that Moses can get more out of him. It's almost a negotiation because God is very upset with his people for breaking the law, breaking the covenant. And Moses says, remember your people and we need your presence with us to distinguish us from other people. And he actually says in Exodus 33, 12, um, sorry, Exodus 33, 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you. That should lead us to pause. Moses needs to know Yahweh. Apparently, what he learned or came to know of Yahweh in Egypt was not enough. Now we have a problem where there's a sinful people who broke the covenant and Moses does not know God's character enough to know how he'll respond. I know we don't like that view. We think we know God's character from the beginning, but it's a progressive revelation. Right. Show me your ways that I may know you. It's always the same verb. It's yada the whole time. Yada. It's no. So what's at stake here is not just the fate of the covenant people, but God's character. What kind of God are you? We know you're powerful. We know you can bring blood into water. We know you can kill the firstborn. We know you separated your people and you saved them. But what do you do when your people have blatantly sinned against you? Are yeah. you a punishing God? Are you a vindictive God? Are you impatient? So Moses is saying, I want to know who you are. Show me your ways. And then he says, show me your glory. And then God says, I will let my glory pass before you and I will proclaim my name. That's a big deal. God sort of added to this con conversation his name. Not just will I show you my glory, I'll proclaim my name. And he says in verse 19, Exodus 33, 19, pay attention, this is a construction you've heard before. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This connects with, I will be whoever I will be. Same construction, verb, asher, verb, same verb, and he does it twice. Um, I think it's achon, asher, achon. The Arabic's getting in my head now, but yeah. And he, achanen, asher, achanen, or something like that. So he's already specifying the whoever that he would be in Exodus 3. He's saying, actually, I will be whoever I will be has shown itself to mean, I will be gracious to whoever I will be gracious. I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy. So the first two characteristics of the name Yahweh is grace and mercy. Rachum wachanun. And sure enough, this is still anticipatory. The climax of God's name and revelation is Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This gets the emphasis, not the glory passing by, not hiding him in a rock, not shielding his face, but these words. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is what Yahweh means. 
I know we're mm. used to making a name mean etymologically. We're used to saying Yahweh means he causes to be. That's not yeah. how the Bible defines it. The Bible defines it according to the drama of Exodus. And at the end of Exodus, God says his name twice, Yahweh, Yahweh. He says it in the third person to sort of give a formula, almost a, almost a doctrinal statement of his name. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God. He's not a human, a God who is compassionate and gracious. Rahum vachanun, not the same adjectives that are in Genesis or Exodus 33. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Yeah. So essentially that's my dissertation, but I'm trying to put the weight, move the weight of the theology from Exodus 3 to Exodus 34. It's not, I am who I am, and therefore I'm transcendent and I encompass all times and all that stuff I don't understand. No, you move it to the forward movement of the narrative and the climax is, I am a God who is merciful and gracious. I'm forgiving. He forgave his people. He renewed the covenant. And that is the basis of God's character throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testaments. That is so good. Wonderful. Well explained. So thank you. You're welcome. For the last question, I'd like to bring this to a personal level and just ask how you pronounce God's name you know, in your, in your family, in prayer, when reading scripture aloud, when lecturing in Hebrew, that kind of thing. Yes. Love to hear it. Yeah. And I love that we discuss this issue that we don't have much time because it's so important and practical and daily. Um, yeah. I take I, as much time as you need. Yeah. I rarely actually use the, the form Yahweh. I never really use it in prayer. Um, I'll use it in class. Interestingly, the Arabic tradition, the Arabic translation that's most used, the pronunciation is Yahwah, Y-A-H-W-A-H. And it's a heavy H or it's a hard H at the end. So Yahwah. So I like to tell them, see, we don't know how to say it. In English, 200 years ago, we said Jehovah. Now we say Yahweh. You guys say Yahwah. And Spanish, it's Jehová, like, you know, what, what's going on? So um, if I use Yahweh, I use it in class. And I tend to use it only in certain texts where a, a proper name is much more appropriate. And I know you've mentioned this, Andrew, that there are verses in the OT where we really need a proper name. It's weird to have the Israelites yeah. falling on their faces at Mount Carmel and saying, the Lord, he is God. Right. That's like saying the president, he is boss. Like there's two titles, but there's no proper name to ascribe anything yeah. to. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I don't like hold to the Jewish view that you never say it. We can say it. Um, mm-hmm. But I believe in God's sovereignty. I don't exactly know why. I have a theory, but he did something incredible. How does an entire society completely forget the proper name of their God? How does that happen? That's that's God's hand in some weird way. Every person, yeah. there wasn't a minority that's, that held on to it and knew it. How is that possible? That just still stuns me. But I believe, I think this was in your paper, that God in his sovereignty has in one sense replaced the function of the name Yahweh in the name Jesus. Right. Because yeah. Yahweh is, is linguistically a proper name and Jesus is linguistically a proper name. So essentially, Christians use Jesus in the same way that 
the people of God in the Old Testament used Yahweh. This is not a great point because theologically we still have to talk about Trinity. So it's yeah. a little tricky. I can't just say Jesus equals Yahweh, period. There's more to be said, but I do believe that functionally God has always had a proper name. And it's interesting that right about the time that the proper name Yahweh or Yahuahu or Yahawahu was falling away, he sends his son into the world. He bears the name Jesus. And right. we use that name. So um, I tend to just, when I'm teaching the OT, say the Lord. And sometimes I like to make the comparison of the Lord Yahweh and the, or Lord Yahweh and the Lord Jesus. I like that because I can say, just as the believers in the Old Testament believed in the Lord Yahweh for salvation, we believers in the New Testament believe in the Lord Jesus for salvation. It's like this continuity. Right. And I know yeah. in your paper you talk about continuity, and um, I'm actually happy if we slightly disagree because we'll learn a lot more from each other. But um, I like the continuity. I really like that. I like that if we use the word Lord in place of Yahweh, then you can read the New Testament and pretty quickly make the connection that Jesus is the Lord. Yeah. And Philippians 2.11 is just so rich, you know. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is kurios, which almost yeah. certainly stands in for the tetragrammaton. So at the, at the very, very least in our English Bibles, we should translate that Jesus is the Lord, all caps, at, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the Lord. That's great. That's great. Thank you. I'd love to ask, you know, if you were consulting a translation team, pick a country, they're doing their first Old Testament translation into their language. And they have no tradition of pronouncing the name of God. So this is totally new to them. Uh, they don't have any longstanding thing like Jehovah or something. How would you advise them? One of two options. I'm going to be flighty and just give you two options. Um, Great. Either I would actually stick with sort of the Jewish tradition of the Old Testament and translate it Lord, but find some way to distinguish yod Vavhe Lord from Adonai Lord. Because like you've said, there's like 300 times where Adonai with Aleph is used of God. Right. Um, and we want to distinguish that. In English, we have capital letters. Lots of languages don't have capitals. Um, I think maybe my flighty answer is there might be some instances where we should supply the proper name. Um, even the Arabic Bible does that like four times. Yahweh occurs. Um, usually it's the Lord. Like they did in the KJV too. Yeah, yeah. similar. And the, the old popular Arabic Bible is sort of in that tradition, sort of. Um, so I think I would advise them to stick with Lord because for me, the continuity is really big. Um, I, especially because we don't know the original form. So we're, we're supplying vowels that might not be there anyway. Um, gotcha. If we want to be really literal, what we could do is put four consonants in the text with no vowels and train every reader to vocalize it as the Lord in their language. Not Adonai, just the Lord in their language. If we want to be like as literal as possible, I just thought of this a few weeks ago. We uh-huh. translate four consonants. That language is equivalent of Y-H-W-H. And then we train everyone to pronounce that the Lord. But uh-huh. that seems a little excessive 
Well, wonderful. This has been so helpful, so illuminating and interesting. So I thank you and behalf of our listeners as well. It's been a pleasure. God bless you and what you're doing as you continue to teach others. Yeah. And all you translators out there, press on men and women. I know it's uh, probably tedious, but it's a beautiful work you're doing and your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Keep going. Thank you. Persevere. Well, that about wraps it up for today. Thank you for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already listened to the series that I did a while back on an experiment in oral scripture adaptation, go ahead and check that out. It's one of my favorite series that I've done. And I think you'll hear a lot of stuff that you've never heard before there. Working for the Word is a podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists ultimately to help you treasure the Bible, go deeper into it, and become like the man of Psalm 1.